This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The recent move by Walmart to invest $16 billion in Indian e-commerce giant Flipkart for a 77% stake in the company shows more so than ever the future of the economy of India and the importance it has around the world. With a population of 1.34 billion people and the ratio of males to females being almost one-to-one, there are many companies outside of India that see it as the next great area of incredible growth. A new book highlights the future of the Indian economy. It is titled, Our Time Has Come, How India is Making Its Place in the World. The author is Alyssa Ayers, who is a senior fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. And she is joining me in the studio right now, along with uh, Mukul Pandya, who is our editor-in-chief for Knowledge at Warden, and he joins us as well. Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for the invitation. McCool, as always, great to see you. Thank you for for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Uh, I mean, this country is, from all accounts, just this unbelievable, formative piece of clay to a degree that is going to see unbelievable, incredible growth in the years to come. Well, yes, it's also seen incredible growth over the course of the past 25, 28 years. Um, there's certainly a lot of potential, more upside to go. Uh, it's always interesting for me to speak with people who are in the business community and, and a business audience who see in India so much opportunity and the momentum and the dynamism. India has a lot of domestic challenges. And so oftentimes when you have conversations about India outside of the business space, people aren't always able to look past the many challenges and domestic vulnerabilities of India. So it is always fun and a different kind of a dialogue to talk with people who are focused on the real tremendous potential Mm -hmm. that India still has ahead of it. So the title of your book, Alyssa, uh, Our Time Has Come, uh, I believe it's a quote from two prime ministers. That's right. Uh, Narendra Modi, the current prime minister, and the previous prime minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh. Uh, Do you agree with their view that India has now arrived in the world stage? And if so, why? I think in many ways India has arrived on the world stage, certainly if we're looking in terms of economic growth and the transformation uh, that is in process. I'm not saying it's complete. I'm not saying India has solved all of its domestic problems. But certainly if you look at where India is now, the new uh, International Monetary Fund economic data revision of April, India is now the world's sixth largest economy, moving up from the seventh largest economy. It's overtaken the size of the economy of France. Mm-hmm. Some estimates suggest that India could overtake the size of the economy of the UK by the end of this calendar year. That would make India the world's fifth largest economy. So we have to start thinking of India both as one of the world's major economies, even though it does have a lot of domestic economic challenges at home. So in that sense, I do think that India has arrived on the world stage. I think India continues to face a lot of challenges when it comes to gaining access to the kinds of global institutions through which the world carries out diplomacy, works on security challenges, and engages in uh, economic consultation. So I, I devote some component of my book as well to this challenge of global governance and India's desire to have have more entry and access to those conversations. How much of a role do you think India wants to have on that side of the uh, of the uh, conversation? 
you know, as they're moving forward? How much do they want to be that global leader on a variety of different platforms? I think it is undeniable that Indian leaders, and this is not new, this is a, a story that goes back decades, have long sought for India to have a seat at what people often call the global high table or, yeah. you know, the, the seat at the center of the world's prayer. India's bid for permanent membership in the UN Security Council, in fact, is not new. This is something that does go back. India has long made the argument of, hey, we're the world's largest democracy. We've been on a consistent basis, one of the world's top contributors to global peacekeeping. Why don't we have that seat at the table? So that's an example there. We could look at economic institutions like APEC, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. This is a a grouping that talks about ways to improve and promote free trade and investment. Well, India's the you know, Asia's third largest economy. Right. It's not a member. It's had a membership request going back more than 20 years. There's been no new members inducted since a moratorium on membership for APEC ended in 2010. But this is a real problem for the legitimacy of APEC to have India on the outside. By the way, this is the example I often give. This year's APEC summit host nation is Papua New Guinea which has a GDP. I mean, it's wonderful that they're a member and that they're hosting and they're upholding the principles of free free trade and investment. But this is a, a country with a GDP of about $20 billion. And India's GDP is growing now, what, $2.6 trillion on track to become a $3 trillion economy fairly yeah. soon. I mean, it really raises questions about this, this issue of access to those kinds of decision-making, consultative fora in which India could and should be playing uh, a leadership role and one that it does seek. So what do you think is holding back the access? What, what are the barriers? That were, how can they be overcome? Some of these are just institutional inertia problems. Certainly, I think uh, uh, UN Security Council reform, if, if we're talking about the, the security arena, that's going to be very difficult, and I can't sugarcoat that. Uh, any reform process will take years. It's very difficult to create a slate of candidates for expansion. Then there are issues in terms of whether new members of the Security Council permanent members should have a veto power or not. Mm -hmm. All these questions remain unresolved. Nobody can agree on it. Uh, I should note here for some of your listeners who might not be tracking this issue, but it's declared U.S. policy to support Indian membership in a reformed and expanded U.N. Security Council. Mm -hmm. So this is something that the United States has affirmatively declared support for. President Obama made that declaration in a statement before the Indian Parliament when he visited in 2010. So this is not something the United States has completely ignored, but I just don't think that we have uh, put our shoulder to the wheel on the question of helping push ahead reform. So I uh, uh, th- thank you for explaining that. Elisa. that that's uh, really good to know that the U.S. policy towards India has been so consistent. Uh, <clears throat> looking back to what you said a little bit earlier about the economic potential, mm. uh, there's also an election that's coming up in India next year. And everybody wants to know what the prediction is, who's going to win it. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to come to that in a bit. But yeah. before that, I was wondering, do you see any potential risks on the economic front? Uh, that could uh, uh, sidetrack the path that India is on. I mean, do you see, for example, uh, economic populism, uh, religious uh, fundamentalism that could derail the process of economic reform that has allowed India to become financially uh, so successful? This is always a risk with any major election because, as you know and as you've tracked so closely over the decades, 
Indian elections are not won on declarations of economic reform, right? <laughs> that That is not the platform that wins you votes. The platform that wins votes in India is a platform that often offers free electricity and <laughs> water and irrigation. Yeah. And, you know, that's the challenge. So one of the things that we have seen over the course of the past year and a half or so throughout successive state-level elections in India, there's always an election going on. Um, in fact, there was just an election over the weekend in a, a very large state, the state of Karnataka. Um, the government has not yet been formed so, because the election was uh, split between parties. In any case, uh, we have seen a series of welfare announcements or sort of the forgiveness of loans to farmers who undeniably are suffering. This is a big challenge. I mean, these are big, big, complex domestic economic policy issues to try to figure out how to provide support in times of, you know, monsoon variability and challenges with crop yields and things that are really, really important for people who do vote in large numbers. Uh, but but I do think that we're not likely to see, for example, uh, major economic reforms, the type of which can really help unleash uh, greater Indian economic growth in the coming years and decades. But do you think... Uh, in, in the run-up to the election, I should say, in the run-up to... Yeah. Yeah, but speaking of the election, do you think that, given what's going on in India, uh, that uh, the government of uh, uh, Narendra Modi and the BJP will be vulnerable uh, to a challenge from Raj, uh, Rahul Gandhi and the Congress or, or perhaps a coalition of parties? Uh, what, what do you think? It is hard to know what could emerge. Um, I think the Karnataka election results that we have seen so far illustrate that the BJP in that state was not able to secure a single-party majority, uh, but neither was Congress able to retain control of the state, mm -hmm. nor did they forge a pre-poll alliance with the JDS and able to, to be able to produce uh, a definitive outcome. So I have to say, I think the complexity of India's political scenario with so many different parties, the, the ability to have both pre-poll as well as post-poll or support from the outside to form coalitions. You just truly don't know. I know right now uh, people keep asking, well, what's the prediction? What what do you think is going to happen in 2019? And I really uh, would be a fool to try to <laughs> suggest some sort of definitive prediction about what might happen. It does appear certainly uh, that the BJP appears to be quite strong uh, in the recent state-level elections. Regardless of... Uh, whether or not we make a prediction. Yeah. Uh, what do you think will happen to India making its place in the world, depending on whether either party gets a clear mandate or if India goes back to the time of uh, coalition politics, which, right. which existed before in the previous Congress administration? Right. Well, let me answer that in, in, uh, in with two um, related but parallel replies. I think the first aspect of that is ambition and, and direction, trajectory of foreign policy. Uh, I, I found it very interesting that when the Congress party held their plenary, um, what, at the end of March this year, they got together and they released a statement on foreign policy that largely affirmed and agreed with the direction that the Modi government has taken India on foreign policy. They uh, affirmed the notion of India now calling itself a leading power. This is a new innovation of the right. Modi government. Uh, but in a sense, it positions India in the direction that India's previous leaders from different parties have sought to see India uh, placed on the world stage. So I, I found that the 
the idea that the Congress plenary would affirm the foreign policy direction uh, that India is currently headed under the present government just suggests to me that there is a lot of consensus within India across parties on the idea that India does deserve that place on the world stage and political leaders who can help take it there are doing the right thing as far as India's politics is concerned. But let me just follow up that question. The thing that I do worry about on the economic front, and I know mm-hmm. a lot of your listeners will be focused on the economic issues here, it is so difficult to continue political reform, economic reform in India. Uh, again, these are you know it was very difficult for the Modi government to get the goods and services tax through. This mm-hmm. was a constitutional amendment, something that the previous Congress-led uh, UPA coalition government had attempted but wasn't able to get through. Right. They the Modi government tried to get through labor law reforms, tried three times to issue ordinances on land acquisition reforms. These are all things that would be helpful to really unleashing the manufacturing sector. Um, not able to get this through on a it requires ratification by action of parliament. Uh, not able to get these through. It's so difficult to get these things done mm. that a coalition government where you've got disparate parties, not all of which agree about the direction towards a more market based. Uh, economy, that that poses some significant challenges. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, We're talking about uh, the book, Our Time Has Come, by Alyssa Ayers, who is joining me in the studio, along with Mukul Pianda of the uh, Knowledge at Wharton staff. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So if you look at the recent past of India and, and the growth that it has had, can you say that where India right now is, are they similar to any other country out there that is that is kind of going through, or, you know, are there other countries that are going through similar types of issues right now in terms of their growth? Well, in, in so many ways, India is unique uh, on the world stage in terms of size, complexity, the challenges that it has faced. Uh, India's economic trajectory in terms of reforms and the onset of reforms is about 15 years behind China's. That doesn't necessarily mean that India will follow the same precise path, right. but it does suggest that uh, the, the pathway that India began in 1991 um, still has a tremendous potential ahead of it. Uh, but there's no country that I can think of on the world stage. And I should note that I am a, a specialist of this region, yeah. so I don't do global comparative okay. work. Right. Uh, I'm sure you've got great professors at Wharton who do global <laughs> right. comparative work. Yeah. Maybe we could do a follow-up. Um, but but I, I just can't think of a country that with similar scale, similar complexity, similar political complexity yeah. uh, that India has. And, and obviously when you're talking about the political side of it, I mean – just you mentioned China. The difference between China and India is is fairly significant. It's enormous. Yeah. So you would be hopeful that that obviously India would be going on a much different path in terms of mindset and freedom and and all kinds of different issues moving forward, uh, it, rather than going down the path of something like China. Well, this is the issue. Uh, you know, the, the the political challenges to economic reform are really, really substantial in India because people have a voice. They can debate. They can throw 
leaders out of office if they don't like the direction that they've been going. You have civil society, which can hold protests and say, we object to this. You've got to take us into consideration. You've got mechanisms through the um, uh, judicial system where people can file public interest litigation about problems like, let's say, a, a large dam that may displace people. None of these kinds of complexities Uh, are the case for China. So you can make big changes right away, moves quickly, no problems. But this is one of the, this is a a, a challenge and a vulnerability for India because it also makes it much harder to carry out large-scale infrastructure development, for example. As I say in the book, these complexities are real, but that aside, I've never met anybody in India who would trade democracy for a faster-moving system. Right. So speaking, since we were speaking of China, uh, Alyssa, I, I, I wonder if we could talk about one Chinese initiative about which a lot has been written. That's the One Belt, One Road initiative. Indeed. Uh, I, I wonder what you think has been India's strategic response and actually what should be India's strategic response to this? India has had a, a very specific strategic response to this. They have been very vocal, the one country on the world stage that has not endorsed the Belt and Road Initiative very, very publicly. Uh, India declined to send an official to the Belt and Road Forum last May. And India has made, in response to questions, the Ministry of External Affairs has created a list of the problems and concerns that they have with the Belt and Road Initiative. Foremost among them are issues such as the lack of transparency in terms of the way Belt and Road loans are negotiated. What is the financing? This can create problems of debt trap or what has in other contexts been called predatory economics. Uh, The viability and sustainability of some of these projects. So India's had a very, very clear position on that front. And at the same time, India partners with China in other contexts. India is the number two capital contributor to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Right. India partners with China in the BRICS uh, organization, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa multilateral institution, which they all created and which is now very active. They all created a new development bank, their own development bank. It went from idea to writing its first loans in the span of about four years. So you do see India partnering with China in in groupings of other countries uh, that are carrying out infrastructure investment loans on a transparent basis. Uh, but they are very, very specific in their critique and their uh, lack of endorsement of the way the Belt and Road Initiative, which is solely Chinese-funded, it's a, a unilateral uh, activity. Uh, they're very, very critical of that. The, the, the last section of your book, which I, I mean, by the way, I just, just love your book. It's a, a, a wonderful read. Thank uh, you. I'm uh, very grateful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so uh, the, the last section of your book uh, deals with how the United States should deal with a rising India. Yeah. And I wonder if you think that the, uh, the strategy of the Trump administration towards India is, 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 is the same as that of the Obama administration and previous administrations, or do you see a difference? And if there is a difference, is it one of style or of substance? Uh, There is a difference on the economic side. I think on the strategic and defense side, they are continuing on the trajectory that was begun under the George W. Bush administration, carried forward by the Obama administration. And I think you do see the Trump administration continuing to partner deeply with India, looking to grow the strategic 
consultation, the strategic cooperation. Um, that is a very, very positive story, and I do hope that it will continue. See, of course, the rise of the concept of the Indo-Pacific as a space where India and the United States can continue working more closely together to uphold a uh, free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, partnering closely with Japan, with Australia, with India, the United States together. Defense is actually, in many ways, one of the leading edges of the U.S.-India relationship now. Yeah. I do see a difference in the way the Trump administration is approaching India on the economic side. And it won't be a surprise to any of your listeners who follow trade negotiations uh, that we've got a long list of frictions with India on the trade front. Uh, certainly, U.S. government officials consistently seek greater market access, a level playing field, access to the Indian market for American companies. That's very, very high on any U.S. government officials list. Now, the Trump administration has taken up some economic approaches that are quite different than previous administrations, uh, such as a focus on uh, bilateral trade deficits. This was really never yeah. on anybody's laundry list yeah. of, of discussion points. Um, India makes that list. There's about a $26 billion trade deficit with India. So that's now added to the frictions list. <laughs> it turns out other things create additional frictions for the frictions list. We have now the Trump administration has imposed the steel and aluminum tariffs. This is not directed at India, but India is caught up in this, like some other countries as well. Yeah. They haven't sought a separate specific exemption, uh, but this is an issue that affects India. So you can add that too. So it's a, the immigration set of issues too. Again, not specifically targeting India, but broadly, this also is an issue that is on the frictions list. No, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the whole issue of uh, H-1B visas for skilled workers has has, yeah. has really been uh, in the news quite a bit recently, uh, recently. So looking at the economic relationship between the U.S. and India, do you foresee in the future any potential landmines that could sort of blow up uh, the relationship uh, and, and undermine the positive uh, relationship that exists in the defense front or the uh, the, uh, the, the, the other fronts? Mm -hmm. I, I try to be optimistic and I try to look for where areas of success are likely to occur. Um, I think we are likely to see, um, you know, defense trade has actually been a great story. Uh, procurements from U.S. companies have gone from essentially zero to more than $15 billion over the course of the last 15 years. That's a big deal. That's a big change. I hope that does continue. You see intensified interest in India in its own defense modernization and intensified interest from the United States in supporting that process. So India can be uh, and continue to grow its capacity as a net provider provider of regional security across the Indian Ocean region. Um, but landmines, are there huge landmines? I think there are uh, uh, not so much huge landmines poised to blow up, but rather maybe a series of small gates and hedges that are just <laughs> going to be a problem and people are going to find themselves stepping into brambles uh, that may not go away easily. India is not the easiest place to do business. Um, this is going to continue, not specifically directed at American companies, but, you know, what? India is number 100 on the World Bank's Ease of Doing Business Index. Yeah. The optimistic view is it's moved up 43 places in the past three years. That's great. Uh, it's not in the top 50 which is, you know, there's some distance to travel before it's an easier place to do business. So you always hear from companies about problems that they face or somebody needed a permission and it's taken 10 months or it's not easy. So I, I think that those types of issues will continue. Right. 
Great having you here today. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very nice much. Nice meeting you. Nice Thank meeting you. you as well. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.